Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 154. And this morning we're actually looking at the whole chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, we go through a lot of superglue in our house. Uh, life with two young kids means that things get broken a lot. And besides finding things, besides finding things that have been lost, the job I do the most as dad probably is fixing those things that have been broken. I can think of at least three things on my workbench right now that need to be glued back together. Sometimes, though, things are just too broken. They're beyond what I can put back together. I might be a professional finder and fixer, but I have my limits. And sometimes the things that we're looking for, they're just too lost. Sometimes the damage to that thing is just too much. And when superglue can't hold it together and when duct tape fails me, the only thing that I have found left to do is to discreetly throw it away, which is something I'm getting better at. <clears throat> it's one thing to give up on fixing a toy. It is another thing to give up on fixing a broken relationship. When the Lord told Moses that he was ready to be done with Israel, that he was ready to destroy them and start over with him to make out of Moses a new nation greater and mightier than they. We get a very vivid picture of how deeply the people had offended God and broken their relationship with him. It, is, it was very serious. All sin is serious. But Israel's open rebellion against the Lord at the very foot of the holy mountain where the Lord had met with them, was particularly wicked and evil. The people had shown their stubbornness, violating God's command mere days after he had spoken it with his own voice to them. They had dishonored God. They had blasphemed his name. They had committed spiritual adultery against him. They had spit in the face of their Redeemer. When we hear the Lord, the God who formed Israel, who revealed himself to them, who called them to be his people, who protected them, redeemed them, and rescued them, turning and telling Moses that he was ready to make an end with them the way he had with Sodom and Gomorrah, we must understand he was not exaggerating. Israel's relationship with God was broken, seemingly beyond all repair. They deserved to be judged. They deserved to be destroyed. And though it would have been right for the fire of God's wrath to come down off the mountain and consume the people, it didn't. Why? Well, because as vast as Israel's sin against God was, as broken as they were and as broken as their relationship with God was, his love was greater and his mercy was more. God forgave Israel. He brought them to repentance. He restored them to himself. And he took those shattered pieces and joined them back together with the glue of his grace. That work of restoration, which Moses outlined for us in the past two chapters, is the basis of the charge he has for the people of Israel in our text today. It is a charge to commit themselves to the Lord and to live in obedience to him. Now, we are 10 chapters deep into the instruction that Moses gave to Israel as they were preparing to go into the promised land. Uh, and although we have received a summary of the law, the greatest commandment of the law, the 10 commandments as well, 
we've not actually really touched on any specific commands within the law itself. And there's a reason for that. The law of Moses is more than just a list of rules. It is, it's not meant to just list a bunch of do's and don'ts, although it does that. The law is about living in a covenant relationship with God of teaching the standard of God's holiness to us, of separating those who have first received it off from the rest of the world to mark them as a unique display of God's glory and grace. The book of Deuteronomy is a book that is designed to teach God's people to walk in the way of holiness and to point us to the rich mercy and the grace of God. Ultimately, it is meant to point us to Jesus Christ who kept the law perfectly, and who gave his life to make his people holy like him. And to that end, Deuteronomy 10 is meant to follow up on what we learned of God's solution for stubborn hearts last week to show us how God restores us to himself through his great grace. So let's look at that now. If you will, please stand with me as I read Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, the Lord said to me, that is Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of Achaia wood and I cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. The people of Israel journeyed from Beeroth to Bnei Jachan to Masara, There Aaron died, and he was buried, and his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gudgoda, and from Gudgoda to Jatbatha, a land with brooks of water. At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, forty days and forty nights. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of this people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. 
For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, as we look at the book of Deuteronomy, as we look at chapter 10 in particular, we see a very clear theme. We see God's mercy and his grace triumphing over the rebellion of sinners. And so the main idea of our text this morning, the main idea of our time that I want to show you is that our God is a God who restores the broken and saves the sinner. Our God is a God who restores the broken and saves the sinner. He is able to do this and willing to do this because he is gracious and merciful and because he has redeemed us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Moses' intention in this chapter is to draw our attention to that gracious love and that redemptive work of God and to show us how we are called to receive and live as recipients of that redemption. So there are three phases to this chapter which outline each of those purposes, and those are going to be our three points this morning. First, I want to show you that our God is a God who redeems. He restores repentant rebels. Second, I want to show you that God is a God who requires. He has expectations for us as we live in a covenant with him. And third, I want to show you that our God is a God who means to reflect, to reflect his own glory through the lives of his people. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning as we look at God's work of redeeming and restoration. So let's begin by really just this, this first point that God is a God who redeems and restores. <clears throat> I don't know that there is any pain quite like going through the breaking or the loss of a relationship. You go through physical pain, that is one thing, but to go through the deep pain of having a close relationship broken, there is nothing like that. The closer we are with someone, the more intimate our relationship with them is, the deeper our love for them is, the more it hurts when someone does something to jeopardize that, to rip that apart. Now, I love the Christmas season. I love everything about it. But I am keenly aware that for some people, maybe even for some of you, the Christmas season may actually be a painful time. I remember back at our old church, we would have friends that would talk about how anxious they were to go home for Christmas because they knew that their family was not, that they did not, that not only were they not believers, they were hostile to the fact that they were. And I remember being struck with how hard it was for them to go home at that time because there was a rift in that relationship and they were bracing for what they were going to have. When we think of celebrating Christmas, we think of spending time with friends and family. But the reality is that sometimes those who are closest to us have dealt us the deepest wounds. And the holiday season has a way of bringing those wounds back up. 
As we think about the events surrounding the golden calf and all the other times that the nation of Israel rebelled against the Lord, individually and corporately, we should recognize that the thing that made those sins so terrible was really that they jeopardized the people's relationship with God. They broke that relationship. They assaulted God's holiness. They violated God's covenant with them. They were wicked actions that could not be merely ignored. They could not be swept under the rug. Uh, We all know what it's like to have someone that we love wrong us. It hurts. It affects. It breaks the relationship. It weighs on us. It leaves a ton of bricks in your chest and in your stomach. Even whether we were the ones who did the wrong or whether we were the ones who were wronged. I, I, remember, um, I remember having to come to my parents back in high school and confess a sin that I had done to them. I don't remember exactly what it was. Either I had talked back to them or I had lied to them. I, I don't remember. But I just remember how awful and uncomfortable it was to confront the reality that I had done something wrong to them. It was tough. I knew I was the guilty party, and the conviction was tearing me up. As I told them, I remember my mom saying that while she forgave me, she said it was going to take time to build back the trust in our relationship that we had had before. And I think that hurt the most, because I know that that was was my fault. That conversation has always stuck with me, even though I've forgotten the thing that I had done wrong. I remember that conversation because she was right. Reconciliation isn't just a matter of saying sorry and then moving on. Sometimes it's something light that we can do, but sometimes it's something deeper, something that rips at the very fabric of that relationship. Reconciliation is not instantaneous and it's not automatic. It has to be intentionally built back, and that takes time. Last week, we saw how Moses interceded for the people before God, and we see that God relented of his wrath. He did not destroy them, though they deserved it. He forgave them, and even more than that, he restored them. And that is what Moses is most concerned with reminding the people and reminding us, recounting to us here in the first part of chapter 10. Moses gives us four steps that God took to restore Israel back to a right relationship with him. Four ways God actually provided and cared for a rebellious people to bring them back into harmony with himself. First, we see that Moses recounts to the people how the Lord provided Israel with two new tablets. Now, this might seem just a a detail uh, to, to just move past. Of course, he gave them two new tablets. The first tablets had been broken Moses had come down from meeting with God and in his anger at the people and to show them how gravely they had offended God. Moses says that he took those sacred stones and threw them down and broke them into a thousand pieces in front of them. Those broken tablets were a physical picture of Israel's relationship with God. They hadn't just broken a rule. They had broken the covenant. In verses 1 and 2, Moses recounts how God instructed him to cut two new tablets, just like the first ones, and to come back up the mountain to meet with him again. There, he says, God wrote the same words that were on the first tablets which Moses had broken as a vivid picture of the way that God had forgiven the people and was bringing them back together. He remained faithful to them even when they were faithless. 
And so these new tablets were meant to show that relationship had been restored. The law did not change. The standards and the commands were not relaxed, but God graciously restored Israel back what had been broken, as he would again and again and again and again, even after they left the foot of the mountain and traveled on to the promised land. Now, the second way we see God providing and caring for Israel is in the way that he appointed Moses to build an ark of wood, the ark of the covenant, in which to carry these new tablets. The Ark of the Covenant played an extremely important role in Israel's worship, not just because it contained the physical evidence of their covenant with God and His commands for them, but also because the Ark stood as a witness of God's special presence with His people. The Ark, which was overlaid with gold, had a lid with two cherubim on it, which was called the mercy seat. And there, when the ark was housed in a part of the temple or the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, God made his special presence dwell in glory there. The mercy seat is where the blood of the sacrifice was offered on the Day of Atonement. It would be sprinkled there once a year to atone for the sins of the nation. It is called the mercy seat because it is where God made his glory dwell in the midst of the people despite their rebellion and also because of the way it physically communicated God's enduring mercy to the people as a literal barrier between them and the demands of the law. From that day, uh, from the day that God instructed Moses to make this ark and to put the Ten Commandments in it, the nation of Israel always had a physical witness of their covenant with God, his expectations of them, and also his grace to them. The third way we see God providing for Israel working to restore their relationship with him is in the way he appointed a line of priests to serve him on behalf of the people. In verses 6 through 9, Moses briefly describes the way that God appointed the tribe of Levi to minister before him and to bless his name. He doesn't mention it here, but the reason God appointed the Levites uh, to do this was in part because of the way they had defended the holiness of God. When Moses had called on the people to defend that, uh, they actually came together uh, at the golden calf and put to death those who were worshiping it. On that day, the, the tribe of Levi was set apart by God for their zeal to inherit a place in his house And they did not receive any of the land of the promised land for themselves. They received instead the Lord in a place in his temple. Now, it's a little ironic that Aaron, who was the first appointed high priest, was also the one who made the calf in the first place. It shows shows how deep God's mercy was to him. Uh, But Aaron and his sons after him, although they were not perfect people, perfect priests, not by a long shot, we see that God graciously chose them to serve the people, to make sacrifices for them, to pray for them, and to praise the Lord in his temple. They were appointed by God to minister before him and to teach the people his ways. And they continued to protect the sanctity of the Lord's house and protect the people through their ministry, interceding for them even as Moses had done on the mountain. The fourth way we see God working to restore the people is in the way that the Lord himself led the people into the land. Now, this is not a small point. In verses 10 and 11, Moses says, I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. Now, it's a little confusing here because I think Moses is jumping back and forth between some 
chronology and some things that had happened. I understand that this is the same 40 days that Moses had spent making intercession for the people after he had gone back up the mountain, especially because Moses mentions uh, the result of that time with the Lord here. He says, the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, arise, go on your journey at the head of the people so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, this moment is more, is, is, is more significant to show us how God had actually restored Israel to himself than you might realize. You see, the first time that God told Moses to take the people to the land, he had said to Moses that he would send his angel before them but he himself would not go with them. Lest, he says in Exodus 33, verse 3, I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, Exodus 33, verse 3, contains some of the most disastrous words that have ever been spoken in the ears of man by the mouth of God. What is the bliss of Canaan to God's people if it is not accompanied with God's presence? What is heaven without God? These words show us just how vast the separation sin made between God and man on that day when they sinned against him. But Exodus 33 goes on to tell us that Moses prayed to the Lord for the people, begging him not to send the people away from Mount Sinai unless his presence went with them. It was God's presence that set Israel apart from all the other nations of the earth. And the Lord listened to Moses' pleas. He vowed that he would go with Israel after all. And as a sign of that, Moses, he showed Moses his, his glory and spoke his name on the mountain, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the second, third, and the fourth generation. This is what makes Moses' statement so significant, both first of all for Israel and then also for us. The Lord is a God of holiness who shows love to sinners, who forgives and restores those who repent and trust in him. Although we have all offended him with our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what God gave to Israel despite their rebellion. He restored them and then he showed them his enduring love and his, his eternal faithfulness. And these four gifts which God gave to them have a greater meaning because they are meant to make us look forward to Christ at whose expense on the cross Israel was able to receive such forgiveness and restoration. In fact, when we read this passage through the lens of the New Testament, we are able to see how each of these gifts which God gave to Israel then are actually meant to point us to the greater work of Christ. Let me show you what I mean. First, in respect to the two tablets of stone, we see that in reconciling Israel back to himself, God did not throw out the law. He didn't throw out the standard. He gave exact copies to Moses for all future generations until Christ, who fulfilled the law with his perfect obedience, set us free from the, laws, from the law and its demands. We read in Romans 8, verses 2 and 3. Second, 
with respect to the ark which contained those tablets, in Christ we have received a new covenant, which Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He says, now if the ministry of death carved on letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because it's glory. And when Moses comes down the mountain after meeting with God, people can't even look at his face because it's glowing with the glory of God, which was being brought to an end, Paul says. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of the law that shows us we are sinners who cannot earn our way to God, the ministry of righteousness, which is the gospel, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, Paul says, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So while the ark had a great glory in Christ, that glory has become magnified even more so because now God's dwelling place is not in a tent made with human hands. It's not in a tabernacle. It is not in a temple, but it is in the very hearts of his people. Third, with respect to the priesthood now in Christ, who is our high priest, Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, we have a perfect priest who has offered once and for all an atoning sacrifice to make us right with God forever. Furthermore, Christ has made his people into a nation of priests, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, having called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And finally, with respect to the promise of God and the presence of God in Jesus, we have received an intercessor who rescues us from the wrath of God, having shed his own blood on the cross, and who ushers us into a greater inheritance in a new heaven, in a new earth, to receive something greater even than Eden, the city of heavenly Jerusalem. Friends, I hope you can see how marvelous God's love is for you. I hope that this affects, in maybe even just a small way, the way that you intend to celebrate Christmas this year. Because the coming of Christ is what secures all of these things, which shows just how faithful God is, which shows us how great and enduring his love is to take sinners and to give his son to save them and bring them back to himself. Not to just have an arm's length relationship with them, but to restore with them what was always meant to be and to take it to another level. God has not taken your broken relationship with him and thrown it in the incinerator. He has redeemed it. He has restored it. He repairs what we have broken, even at the cost of his own son. And that is what Christmas is all about. It's about God the Father sending his beloved son into the world, into weakness, to redeem and to save that which was lost. It's about God restoring what was lost to sin and to darkness, magnifying the glory of his grace with his love. What a gift. We serve a God 
it redeems and restores. And that brings us to our second point, what God requires. Now, I'm a bit of a superstitious person when it comes to getting free things. I remember coming off the subway in Washington, D.C. when Ellie and I were on our first anniversary, and this guy met me at the top of the escalators. We're coming out of the subway, and he's like, here, have a free hat. And I was like, no, I don't know what you want from me, but I'm not giving it to you. And he got very upset with me. I, I start looking for catches when you start offering me free things. And I suspect most of you are probably like that, too. So when it comes to a gospel, a good news like this, it is just hard to believe that restoration can truly be free. In the back of our heads, whether or not we admit it or not, we're starting to think to ourselves, okay, so what's the catch? How do I get this? Why would God do this for me? What does he expect from me? What does he require? Well, Moses gives us the answer here, verses 12 through 15. And what he says might surprise you. Moses says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So this is what the Lord wants from his people. He wants you. He wants you to receive by faith what he has already purchased for you. The riches that God holds out to you are costly, not to you, but to Christ. No, to you, this is a gift of love, a gift that is truly free because it has been purchased by his beloved son. This is a gift, a gift of love to be received and to be lived in. Human pride makes it so hard to believe that God does not intend for us to earn his favor. But the simple reality from what Moses says here about what God requires of us is that it intends for us to, to teach us that we are meant to live in that relationship that he has redeemed us to have with him. To fear the Lord, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him, to leverage all of our life in pursuit of him after he's rescued us. These are not acts or deeds by which we earn his good graces. They are the fruit of his work for us and in us. They are actions which show we have received this salvation, that we have been declared righteous, that we have a new heart and his spirit within us that longs to honor and obey him. That is the difference between trying to live by the letter of the law only to die by the law and living by the work of the Spirit who bears this fruit of faith in our lives. I, I like to hunt in trees. I have always enjoyed that aspect of deer hunting because I like to climb trees. Before I ever get up in the tree, I always am sure to check to make sure that I'm not climbing a tree that is dead because that's a good way to end up dead. So before I ever hang my climbing sticks on a tree, I look to make sure that that tree is, is able to be, I look for signs of life to make sure it's able to hold my weight. So I look for leaves, I look for acorns, I look for little twigs that are green and flexible if you bend them. You know a tree by its fruit. And a life that has been redeemed and which has been, which has a spirit working in them, bears fruit as well. 
It has these markers, which Moses talks about here, the fruit of fearing God, of loving him, of walking in his ways, of serving him, not just outwardly, but from the heart. These are things that show that a person is in a right relationship with God. And the only way to have that relationship, Scripture says, is to receive it by faith in his Son. It is essential and critical that you and I understand that the requirement to enter a right relationship with God, to receive forgiveness and restoration, is not something that we do and earn. It is something that Christ has done for us. And because of that, because he has met that standard and redeemed us from the demand of death, now we are able to have this right relationship with God as a gift of his grace. The commands that God now gives to you and to us are the commands and the requirements of how we are called to live by grace in the life of his son. That is the way that citizens of the kingdom of God live. They wave the flag of their father. This is the way that sons and daughters of God are called to live as members of the household of faith. In Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, we are told that this man had two sons. And the younger one came to his father one day and said, Father, give me my inheritance. And though it was a great insult to the father, in that day and time to say, give me, your inherit- give me my inheritance, was to say, I wish you were dead because I want your stuff. That's, that's what he was saying. And although it was a great insult to the father, the father gave his son what he asked for. And then to add further insult to injury, that son went to a foreign land and he squandered that inheritance on foolish things, spending and spending and spending until he had nothing left except for shame and hunger. And then one day, Jesus says, while feeding a farmer's pigs, longing to have their slop for his own food, this son suddenly came to his own senses and said, even the servants in my father's house have more than enough bread. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So He's trying to earn his way back into his father's graces. But Jesus tells us that the son came as the son came on the road while he was still a long way off. The father saw him and he ran to him and he embraced him and kissed him and restored him to his house as a son again. The father in that story required nothing from his lost son except that he come and receive his grace and love. He welcomed him in, and before his son could even say a word to him, he honored him with glory he did not deserve and made him a member of his house again. As prodigal children, God does not leave it up to us to go out and make it right with him. He adopts us in, restores us through the cleansing blood of his obedient son, and gives us what he requires. What he requires of us is to live now by faith, to live in accordance with the rules of his house as his children, which are for our good and which are meant to reflect his character. And that brings us to the third point, the third phase of this chapter, which is that God means to reflect his glory through the lives of his people. In verse 16, 
<clears throat> Moses gives this really key command. It is really essential. He says, circumcise therefore. So on the basis of what God has done for you, this is how you live. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now, his meaning is clear and easy to understand. God is not looking for outward deeds done merely to pacify him. God is looking for true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He is looking for sons and daughters to love and obey him from the heart and to reflect the glory of who he is and all they do as they delight themselves in him. According to the law, every male in the house of Israel was to be circumcised as an outward sign of their membership in the covenant. It is striking to me as I read this that this command to circumcise your heart is not given to just the men, but to the women as well and the children as well. If a man was not circumcised, God said they would be cut off from their people. Circumcision was serious business because it was a physical statement that a man belonged to God and that he was an heir to the promise of the covenant, that he was separated from the nations that were around Israel. But outward circumcision, we come to see as the Old Testament progresses, that it counts really as nothing apart from an inward circumcision. And that is the thrust of Moses' command here. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart, he says. An uncircumcised heart is a heart that remains stubborn, enslaved to the passions of sin and the lusts of the flesh. An uncircumcised heart is a heart that is dull to the glory of God and treasures self above others. An uncircumcised heart is enraptured with pride and it is under the power of the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. And an uncircumcised heart will always seek to avoid punishment by merely giving lip service to God while giving true service to sin and self. A circumcised heart, on the other hand, is a heart of faith. It, it belongs to God and therefore it is in tune with God. A circumcised heart is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit who works against those old passions to help us put them to death and instills new passions and new desires that want to reflect the glory of God the Father and the character of Christ the Son. A circumcised heart is a heart that has been changed and softened to be tender towards God and at war with darkness. We, we can see how a circumcised heart reflects the rule and the priorities and the character of God in what Moses says in verses 17 through 20. After Moses declares, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe, he goes on to say that the heart of God is set on justice and righteousness, that he executes justice for the fathers, for the orphan, for the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then, because of these things that are in God's character, Moses then applies that to God's people. And he says, love the sojourner, therefore, because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And the understanding is that we repeat all those other things that he said are after the heart of God. He says, you shall fear the Lord your God. Not, not in a quaking of God's going to judge me, but a fear of love and reverence the way an obedient son fears his father and loves his father. 
He says, you shall serve him. You shall hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. So God's people are taking God's identity on for themselves. Not that they become God, but that they serve him as his people. The actions of God's people are meant to flow out of that renewed relationship with him with, from a heart of faith, from a circumcised heart. And therefore, they produce works that look like God's heart. And they do it to God's glory, which is the glory of his people. Verses 21 22, Moses says, he is your praise. What, what, can you imagine that? That when God gets praise, God's people are joyful. He is your God, Moses says, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven, which is to say that God's promises came true. God worked in ways despite the slavery, despite Pharaoh trying to kill all the males. Despite the way that Pharaoh would not let the people go, God sent Israel down in small in number and brought them out a mighty nation. God means for his glory and his character to shine, to be reflected out into all creation through the lives of his people. This is why God calls us to do the things that he calls us to do. Because they are in line with his character, and thus, as his children, we are meant to reflect them out in the way we live. This is why we live in the fear of the Lord, to the glory of God, embracing his commands for our lives, because we love nothing more than the glory of our Heavenly Father, which was the priority of Christ, God's Son, when he came to save us and reconcile us, to cut us off from sin and rejoin us in a right relationship with him. So how do we get this circumcised heart? Well, we get it by faith. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. In him, that's Christ, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against, its, against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the circumcision of the heart is a gift that comes by grace through faith in Christ on account of what he has done for us, dying in our place and rising in victory over the grave. That gift of that new heart we looked at last week with the prophet Ezekiel is a gift that comes to us through this divine work in the new covenant that we have in Christ through his blood. We receive the benefits of his work through faith, and as a result, we receive a heart that is meant to reflect his work. The story of God's grace in Christ, the story of Christmas, is that God has given what we could not to save us from what we could not 
to reconcile to him us in a relationship of favor that we don't deserve to give us new hearts and new priorities and the ability to act on those things in a way that reflects his glory so that the rulers and the authorities that are in the heavenly places we're told look at the church to perceive the mystery of God's grace so that the glory of Christ might be all in all. Deuteronomy 10 shows us the heart of God. He is a God who redeems and restores. It also calls us to embrace that heart by faith, being cut off from those old desires, to live a life full of grace and full of glory in him. This is the gift that we have received. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to come before you this morning and thank you for the way that you have not only not cast us aside, because you could do that, and you would be right to do that, but that you have rescued us. You have not thrown the relationship, broken as it is, away, but that you have redeemed and restored it, and you have worked by your power to glue it together by grace in a way that only your spirit can do. Lord, as we marvel at this work that you have done, give us hearts of worship. Give us hearts that see the manger scene and realize the weight of it. That the Son of God in this helpless form has come to rescue us from our helplessness, from our deadness, so that we might have life in his life. And Lord, give us mouths to speak this to our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. Help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to to reconcile broken relationships and to always speak the grace of Christ into each other's lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, for his sake, for his glory. Amen.